Have you any message for His Majesty? I'd serve God on half so well as I served my king. God would not have left me here to die in this place. Thank God you're dying here. The king would have you to die in the tower. If I had served God, perhaps half so well as I served my king, God would not have left me here to die in this place. These are the last words of Cardinal Wolsey, the corrupt, decadent, insatiable Wolsey. But the Duke of Norfolk has little sympathy for Wolsey. He curtly responds, Thank God you're dying here. The king would have you to die in the tower. Wolsey falls back on his deathbed. Can he take any comfort in these words, that even though he is going to die, at least it is going to happen in his bed in the city of Leicester, and not in prison in the famous or the infamous Tower of London? It is not just that Wolsey is on the verge of death. The finale to his life has already been wrenching. A few years ago, he was the most powerful man in all of England, even more powerful than King Henry himself. In fact, he was far more powerful and far wealthier. We need to appreciate how much money Wolsey had actually accumulated. We speak today of the super rich, but even Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, has only $280 billion. By contrast, the United States government has approximately $140 trillion in wealth. In short, Elon Musk is only 2% as wealthy as the nation in which he lives. But in relative terms, Woolsey was over 15 times wealthier even than Elon Musk. Woolsey had one-third as much money as the entire government of England. No matter how rich Musk gets, he's not going to reach one-third of the government's wealth. But that's how much Woolsey made. In the end, however, King Henry was Wolsey's boss, and as King Henry VIII got older, he began to notice that, well, Wolsey's palaces were far more sumptuous and grand than his own. It was only a matter of time before Henry figured out who was really running and profiting from England. And so, Henry ultimately stripped Wolsey of all his wealth and titles and ordered him to London to stand trial for treason. But Norfolk was right. God did leave Wolsey one source of consolation. He could die a natural death. He needn't die in the tower. You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 28, Third Kings 7. My lady! The king! 
I've always been particularly fascinated by this exchange between Cardinal Woolsey and the Duke of Norfolk in the 1966 film A Man for All Seasons. Woolsey is played legendarily by the now corpulent Orson Welles. Woolsey, with his doubled chin and laborious breathing and overly rosy cheeks, lies underneath the blanket. He sees himself reduced to poverty, his legacy tarnished, his life vanishing. Still, Norfolk reminds him that it could be worse. He could have been left to die in the tower. This reminder, though far from consoling, is nevertheless indisputable. It could have been worse. At this point, Woolsey has a choice. He can discard the ice-cold comfort of Norfolk and say or think, what does it matter where I am to die? I'm going to die after all. I've lost my entire fortune, my honor, and now even my life. There is nothing left to be grateful for, not even the manner of my death. Or he can choose to find, even in this breadcrumb of advantage, a bit of gratitude. If I had served God half as well as I had served my king, God wouldn't have left me here to die in this place. But at least I need not die in the tower. The Stoic philosopher from the late Roman Empire, Epictetus, gives the same perspective. In one of his most famous passages, he writes, quote, I must die, but must I die bawling? Unquote. I must die, but must I die bawling? Epictetus writes, In this most extreme of examples, Epictetus demonstrates how, in every situation, even in dying, there was always some freedom left to us. Indeed, Epictetus would even go so far as to say that if you're waiting to find out if you'll be executed or merely exiled, you should enjoy the remainder of the day you have left by going to the Roman gymnasium and getting a workout in. When Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial, opens up, the protagonist, Joseph K., awakes to find himself arrested. The novel begins with the legendary opening lines. One day, without having done anything wrong, Joseph K. awoke to find himself under arrest. Two men in suits named Franz and Willem appear in Joseph K.'s apartment and inform him that he's been arrested. There are several reasons why this arrest is so unusual and puzzling. First, Joseph K. never learns what crime he has allegedly committed and what he's been accused of. Second, there is no actual arrest. That is, Joseph K. is not placed in handcuffs or prevented in any way from changing his life around. And third, and perhaps most importantly, Joseph K. seems to secretly enjoy being arrested and seems to actually assist the authorities in prosecuting himself. Ironically, Joseph K. is arrested in such a way that he is totally free. In fact, we might even say that the arrest magnifies his freedom. Suddenly, K. has the ability to make tons of choices. How should he view himself now that he's been arrested? Should he cooperate with the court? Should he ignore the court and just walk away from the trial altogether? The tragedy of the trial is that Kay continually abnegates his ability to choose. He sees his trial as a burden which he must throw off, rather than as an opportunity to figure out how to create freedom out of a crisis. The final chapter of the trial is the scene of Kay's execution. In this sense, 
We might compare him to Cardinal Wolsey or to Epictetus's anonymous subject. He is sentenced to die, but the choice still remains to him how he will die. In this final scene, Kafka makes it very clear that, once again, Joseph K. fails to rise to the occasion. He waits in his apartment, dressed all in black, for the two men to arrive. When they grab him, he hardly resists, merely admonishing them for being overly aggressive. In the final few sentences, Joseph K. lies in a quarry with the two executioners hovering over him. They pass the knife back and forth. In this moment, K. thinks to himself that he knew it was his duty to grab the knife and commit the execution himself. But instead, he looks away and continues to reflect on his trial. In short, Kafka makes it evident in this final scene that choices remain with us all the way up until the very end. Even after failing over and over again to assert his freedom, Joseph K. still has freedom available to him to his final breath. Now, a possible objection here is that even when we avoid choosing, that is also a choice. One could argue that K. chooses not to choose. But that is too easy an answer. It's a cop-out. And Kafka makes this point more than apparent in the story's absolute ending. Time runs out on Joseph K. One executioner lays his hand on K's throat, while the other takes a butcher's knife, thrusts it into K's heart, and turns it twice. Here, Kafka reminds us that we cannot keep on deferring action and call that choosing and freedom, because eventually, existence chooses for us, the lights go out, and our freedom really is over. K had to be arrested, he had to be executed, but he might have taken the advice of Epictetus, or the Duke of Norfolk, and not have died bawling. The Haftarah for the Parsha of Mitsura comes from the second book of Kings. The story opens with four men. The four men are lepers, that is, they have the disease of leprosy. And they are sitting outside the city gates. Men with leprosy were not allowed inside the city. Clearly, this is not a desirous situation to be in, to have a skin disease so pernicious that you've been banned from your own city. But it gets worse. There is no food, and the four men are starving. A quick dialogue between them ensues. They realize, very matter-of-factly, that if they stay outside the city, they will die of hunger. If they break into the city, and there is a famine also inside, then they will die as well. And finally, there's the chance that, even if there is food inside the city walls, it will not matter for the four men. If they are seen by the castle guards, they will be killed within minutes. Nevertheless, the men decide to enter the city anyway. They reason that if they stay outside, they are guaranteed to die. But if they go in, at least there is a chance they will live. What this little episode from the Torah reminds us of is that we always have choices. Even if you're a starving leper banned from your hometown, freedom is never entirely taken from you. And under the circumstances, these lepers, unlike Joseph K., did not recoil before freedom. This is a freedom, mind you, which no one would celebrate, which no one would describe as liberating or exhilarating or gratifying. It is a dark freedom, a freedom squeezed out from the abysses of imprisonment. But that is exactly the point. Joseph K. did not like to be arrested. He did not enjoy it. 
and hence he lamented his situation so much that he closed himself off to choices. Anyone can seize and relish freedom when one is already thriving, when freedom promises bliss and prosperity. But to embrace freedom when it makes your life only a little less awful, not only is that no simple task, but it often requires great strength and fortitude. Jean-Paul Sartre summed up this idea in his famous quote that, we are condemned to be free. With this quote, Sartre meant that we can never fully let ourselves off the hook for the situation in which we find ourselves. We are condemned by the possibility that it lies within us to make our situation better in every instance. If anyone, these four leprous men were condemned to be free. Freedom remained available to them even when their lives could scarcely have gotten worse, even when they had thousands of excuses available to just give up. But instead, they eagerly grabbed at freedom even when, so to speak, the knife of the executioner was being passed back and forth over them. Say what you will about these lepers, one thing is for sure. If they were going to die, they weren't going to die bawling. Fortunately, most of us, most of the time, do not need to make the horrific decision of how we will respond amid the gravest of circumstances, like leprosy, or arrest, or exile, or execution. But I would argue that, all the time, moments of freedom are held out to us, even when we are so dejected or beleaguered that the last thing we want to do is make choices, look for silver linings, or cut our losses. This phenomenon comes to a head, I think, when you fly coach on an airplane. I flew to Israel from Berlin just a few days ago, so the experience of flying coach is still very much in my mind. Flying today can only be described with one word, a degradation of the human soul. To take your seat on a full-to-capacity flight on a budget airline is the closest that many of us will ever come to experiencing a day in the life of a pig on a factory farm. You are forced to sleep sitting upright. Your neighbor's body fat spills over onto your seat. You even have to climb over people to relieve yourself. But nevertheless, there are still countless ways to make your flight better if you learn to think a bit like the lepers. You can, for example, take a window seat where you have your own little nook of privacy and no one will wake you up so they can go to the bathroom. You might consider bringing a toothbrush, a bar of soap, and a fresh change of clothes aboard with you. You could even bring slippers in your handbag so you don't need to sleep in your boots. We all must fly but must we fly without comfy slippers? No, that remains our choice.